0: The Good Old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Welcome back to the Good Old Grateful Dead cast. This week we have a delightful detour planned for you. A bonus episode that is not only timely and seasonal, but full of great stories revolving around the making of one of our favorite Grateful Dead albums, Reckoning. If this is your first time joining us, we invite you to also check out the 10 episodes from our first season, which dove headfirst into the eight songs on Working Man's Dead and also served up two fun bonus episodes as side dishes. Both Working Man's Dead and American Beauty are celebrating their 50th anniversaries this year, and we are happy to celebrate with all of you. You can always get the latest episodes and link to your favorite listening platforms at dead.net slash deadcast. Our website also has bonus materials for each episode, including links to full audio clips or videos we weren't able to fully dive into in the podcast. Get you some. Hey, please help this podcast by subscribing, hitting that like button, and if you dug it, leave us a review. Thank you very, very much. It is the 50th anniversary of American Beauty. And Grateful Dead have prepared a three-CD set reissue of this classic album, which includes a pristine remastering of the album's 10 tracks, as well as an unreleased live show from February 18th, 1971 at the Capitol Theater. If you liked the 50th anniversary set we released for Working Man's Dead, you'll be sure to love the American Beauty version as well, so check it out at dead.net. Have you checked out the new batch of Angel Share audio yet? Out now are the full band demos for American Beauty and you can hear early, live in the studio, acoustic versions of the American Beauty songs recorded just before the band went into Wally Hyders in San Francisco to lay them down for real. Be sure to check out the American Beauty Angel Share Audio at your favorite streaming service or download provider. Well, back in 1980, the Dead were celebrating their 15th anniversary, and to celebrate, the boys played runs of shows in both San Francisco at the Warfield and in New York City at Radio City Music Hall. In this bonus episode, we celebrate the now 40th anniversary of that 15th anniversary. The recordings of those runs yielding not one, but two killer live albums, The Acoustic Reckoning and The Wonderfully Electric Dead set. And dig this. We've got your All Hallows' Eve plans sussed out for you. Join David Lemieux and Gary Lambert on Friday, October 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific for what is sure to be a very funny Shakedown stream pre-show with longtime deadhead and comedian Al Franken. The main feature will be Dead Ahead, recorded at Radio City Music Hall in New York City on October 30th and 31st, 1980, which was hosted by Al Franken himself, along with his comedy partner, Tom Davis, on the evening of the 31st. Here to let us in on all the backstory is your friend and mine, Jesse Jarno.
1: At least at my current space-time coordinates, and perhaps yours, it's autumn. And when it's autumn, that means it's time for Acoustic Dead.
2: In the timbers of Canary the wolves are running around. The winter was so hot and cold, frost ten feet beneath the ground.
3: Don't murder me. I beg
1: you, you don't murder me. This month marks the 40th anniversary of Reckoning and Dead Set, the Grateful Dead's live acoustic and electric double LPs recorded at San Francisco's Warfield Theater and New York's Radio City Music Hall in the fall of 1980. And this Halloween also marks the 40th anniversary of Dead Ahead, the simulcast from Radio City with comedians Al Franken and Tom Davis, coming soon to a shakedown stream near you. Released on VHS and Laserdisc in 1981, it became a perennial on PBS pledge drives and a staple in dorm rooms everywhere. The four discs of Reckoning and Dead Set became arguably The Dead's first major live release since Europe 72. This is the story of how The Grateful Dead's 15th anniversary shows became a landmark in the band's history. Here's former Senator Al Franken. He'll be back later.
4: I put together a Spotify list, I don't know, a few weeks ago, both for Deadheads and people who hadn't really hadn't heard The Dead. And so I opened with Dark Hollow from Reckoning. I wanted to do that because, you know, sometimes people who don't know The Dead at all, they don't know who they are. And they think, oh, they're heavy metal or something. I don't know what they are. And the musicianship is so evident there from the acoustics. So I started with that. So I wanted to suck those people in and say, these guys are great musicians.
5: I'd rather be in some dark heart, where the sun don't ever shine, than to see when the man's dark,
1: and to know. New Yorker staff writer Nick Palmgarden.
6: a big album for us actually was reckoning it was acoustic Grateful Dead and it was that was another entry point where it was like it was clean you could hear what they were doing you could hear the song craft it wasn't too boomy you could hear the lyrics and it introduced my whole gang to a whole bunch of songs that they, they may not have been the rotation on a lot of other stuff and really I mean it, it was basically them reprising the thing that they had done ten years earlier I mean the working man's and, and American Beauty stage when they, you know, rediscovered their roots and they were playing acoustic sets and playing traditional American music more on the nose than they had before, and it kind of creates that bridge for you as as someone trying to understand where, where this band's coming from, what they've been doing. They, you know, they're playing you know old Appalachian ballads and folk English songs mixed in with you know with blues songs and then their own compositions like Bird Song or, or or whatever they're you know kind of. More experimental, I guess you'd call it. You know, Reckoning is still like a, a foundational dead text for me, and uh, yeah, I'm even thinking about it right now. You know, i just like it chills just thinking about listening to it. Uh, you can hear that they are much better musicians in 1980 than they were in 1970. They're more sophisticated musicians by far. Obviously, the instruments and the miking of the instruments is better, but um, in, in terms of you know like the, the the things that Weir can do on an acoustic guitar, uh, the dynamics. You know, Garcia's acoustic guitar playing is frustrating sometimes. He's a, you know, he has that plonk thing that he does. You know, he's he's, he's technically imperfect. It's part of the charm. But I, I, you know, I think he's doing things that are more interesting on guitar in some ways. the the presentation in 70 was more like straightforward. Like we're playing these songs now. You know, I'm thinking of like a like a wake up little Susie from the, you know it's it's like we're we're doing it we're like two guys doing it. Whereas you think of like the, the you know the the bird song outro jam on Reckoning. I mean that that's like rich ensemble acoustic experimental music.
1: Ed's 15th anniversary shows became a milestone for the band, creating music that became part of their official canon and a whole bushel of new firsts along the way. Before the eight shows at Radio City, Bob Weir and Jerry Garcia gave a short press conference. guess it's you and me, Bob. Uh, Bob. The shows were being advertised as 15th anniversary retrospectives. That was, that's like pure uh, that's, fiction. You know, uh, that <laughs> the pop the, uh, We're, we're not doing answer. that's
3: another thing we're not doing on purpose. the, 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 the truth of the matter is that all, all is, as long as we've played, we've always played some amount of everything we've ever played. You know. We're just so. playing as many of our old songs as we can remember. Yeah, just we, like have we a, always we're, do. We're, yeah, we right. We have a huge number of songs, and, and we remember lots of them. Sometimes this
5: 15 year 15 year retrospective uh, business was
1: somebody else's. Then why the acoustic performances, guys?
3: It's a difficult thing to do with my conventional microphones and stuff, but we found these snazzy new guitars that they make now that are, are acoustic electrical. Dig this. There's another reason. We're playing in theaters, you know? These are theaters. Like, normally we play arenas in these colossal, gigantic places where if you had an acoustic, even an electric acoustic guitar, it would feedback horrendously. Hey,
7: let's, let him, let's let him fix the PA for a minute. Hey, it won't do anything ah, if you don't mess
3: around with it. It was okay until they started messing with it. Yeah, The technical problems involved in it are just, they're hopeless in a really big place. I mean, at least they're hopeless for us. Somebody else might be able to. Play I think we could do
1: it. I think we could do it now. They wouldn't. But for 25 nights in the fall of 1980, in smaller venues the dead themselves would rarely or never play again, it was glorious. Also, never trust a prankster. For a slightly more straightforward account of what happened, let's start with Richard Loren, After working with Olden in the Way and other Garcia side trips, Richard started managing the Grateful Dead in the late 70s. You can read a full account of his time with the Dead, the Jefferson Airplane, and others in his fantastic memoir, High Notes, which you can order via highnotes.org. Around June
8: of 1980, we booked uh, a show in Boulder with a promoter named Barry Fay, and we did two nights there. In order to bolster ticket sales, he announced it as the 15th anniversary of the founding of the Grateful Dead. Wow, you know, oh, really? No kidding. He said, yes, he says, you know, Phil joined the, the band, and the, the Warlocks at the time, and that was the,
1: the date of the 65, and that's when the band formed. Okay, great.
2: Grateful Dead biographer Dennis McNally. Nobody bothered to tell the band that the, that the audience was expecting something special for the 15th anniversary. band didn't know it was the 15th anniversary. So at the end of the first night, there was two nights at Folsom Field, and at the end of the first night, basically, they sort of, they're, you know, they're the man going, boy, the audience was really off today. Rock, Scully says, well, yeah, that's because, you know, it was the 15th anniversary and you didn't do anything. And they went, it was? So the next day, they, you know, put together a, 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 you know, a special opener that was like a little better, but... Then, in the Grateful Dead way, they said, all right, well, if we're going to have an anniversary, let's let's work it up more um, seriously. And the end result was the series of shows, 13 at the Warfield, two in New Orleans, and then a week or so in, um, in New York, ending on Halloween, which was simulcast, I guess you'd call it simulcast, to theaters on the East Coast. A decade and a half into the Dead's career, the 15th anniversary shows
1: would become a peak of their own, whether the band acknowledged the anniversary or not. The shows marked the end of some storylines and the beginning of others, along with the band's usual bundle of firsts. After finishing their summer tour in Maine the weekend after Labor Day, they reconvened at their Front Street space in San Rafael for a few days of short acoustic rehearsals. Besides a one-off 1978 benefit billed as Bob Weir and Friends, these would be their first acoustic set since late 1970. Here's a little bit of the band practicing to Lay Me Down at Front Street on September 14th, 1980, released on the expanded version of Reckoning. Debut during the band's 1970 acoustic sets, they hadn't performed to Lay Me Down live since 1974, one of the many songs they would revive, and they had a whole new sound with Brett Midland on acoustic piano. Stay tuned to the good old Grateful Dead cast for a lot more about this song. Today. In San Francisco, the band called in promoter Bill Graham, their longtime collaborator. Here's dead manager Richard Loren. He took out a
8: full-page ad in the San Francisco Chronicle, you know, plastered with his famous quote, they're not the best at what they do, they're the only ones that do what they do. So this quote, of course, enigmatic, became familiar with, you know, deadheads for forever, Right. And they recognized it, and and the aunt made no mention of the Grateful Dead that they were going to perform at the Warfield Theater. Because we'd made an arrangement. He said, okay, I want to do a show. I said, well, let's do the Warfield Theater. So we set you know, a week of dates, the end of September into October, to do some shows there. When the dates were set at the Warfield, I immediately called John Shear. Now, John Shear was our, hired as tour director for us. I was manager at the time, and I'd been an agent before that. When I was employed as their manager, it was, you know, we turned over all the booking activities to, to John, and he took care of all that for us. So I called John. I said, John, I said, you know, I said, you know, we're going to, Bill's going to do this 15th anniversary show here, Can you come, up, come up with something equally impressive, spectacle in New York. He says, we might be able to get into Radio City Music or I said, what? Radio City Musical, the most conservative place you could ever imagine, you could ever play, especially for a rock band like the Grateful Dead, you know, to do G rated films and rockettes. And, you know, the the manager never allowed much of freaks like us (laughs) in here, you know. This is really weird. You know, I said, well, maybe. He said, I think they might, you know. He thought, he said, because he said, said, and I learned that they were trying to, the, the management and the owners of the Radio City Musical were trying to hang on to the place because it was bankrupt. And they, need, and they needed the money to keep it up. You know, John Belucci, old friend of the dead from the days of Saturday Night Live, delivered a commentary on Saturday Night Live's weekend edition, a weekend update, whatever it's called. And it was a public outcry. People
1: took it over and the place was preserved as a New York City landmark. Thank you, John. Argued Belucci, if they need more office space, why don't they tear down Roseland or CBGBs? They're fire traps anyway. It's from the April 8th, 1978 episode, and he makes a great case.
8: It was unthinkable, but it, it basically happened. And, and we booked eight concerts over 10 days, ending on Halloween night. And as the Grateful Dead, famous for their many firsts, this was the first performance by a rock
1: band in Radio City's musical history. Before the shows even happened, the Radio City gigs would produce another first for the dead. Tickets went on sale at the venue box office and Ticketron outlets on the morning of Monday, September 22nd. When New York media arrived at their midtown offices, they couldn't help but notice the dead freaks that had been camping on the sidewalk outside the box office for upwards of three days. It became a news sensation, perhaps the first nationwide coverage of the deadhead phenomenon. An Associated Press story ran coast to coast. The Hare Krishnas arrived and passed out halva and plum juice. ABC sent a news team.
0: My name's UJ Pastrana, and I'm waiting here for Grateful
4: Dead. I've been here. I waited online for three days for these
1: tickets. Tonight is my 75th concert.
4: The Dead care about their fans, and they play music so that that
8: their fans like. They make everybody feel good. I try to go to every concert they perform
6: because they're the best at what they do. The Dead are just beautiful. They they make beautiful music. They offer something that nobody else offers. And it's it, it, there's a family, a big family.
9: The Dead, you know, that's where most of my money goes.
8: 2,000 fans waited. but They camped out for three days on the sidewalk just to snag the 50,000 tickets for the shows. Cab drivers were screaming at them. I mean, it was like, it was insane. It was insane.
1: They didn't create any problems. They never did create problems, you know? From 1980 on, deadheads were often just as much a part of the story as the dead themselves. And in the late 80s, after Richard Loren's departure, the crowds did get to be a problem, but not in 1980. The shows at the Warfield opened a few days later in San Francisco on September
10: 25th. Here's Bay Area dead freak Eric Nelson. When the news dropped that the Grateful Dead were going to be playing The Warfield, that was a huge deal. Dylan had come in, uh, was coming in too. There was a lot happening at the Warfield. That was Bill Graham's, you know, brand new venue and stomping ground. So tickets vanished very quickly, and I'm one of the ones who bought them. But I'll never forget opening night, going into that, wonderful, wonderful space for the first time, taking my seat. And what was instantly different was there was a curtain dropped. So there was, you couldn't, the the curtain was down. And right there, that's not a usual Grateful Dead environment. So finally, the house lights come down. You hear this backstage, you know, moving things around and creaking. And then all of a sudden, the curtain rises. And it's the boys sitting acoustic with that great lineup. And they launch into Bird Song. And it was just this, everyone was like, it had been 10 years really since a proper Grateful Dead acoustic set. So it was this mass uh, exhalation and inhalation of, oh my God. And then they went off and the first night is a very credible performance. They had it down. I seem to think I saw nine of the shows and I know I saw seven of the Dylan shows in that period and I saw four Springsteen shows all in uh, a five week period in October. So I was a zombie by the end of that month. It was a great month in San Francisco to say the least. Here's Steve Silverman who caught 10 of the nights.
7: Rumors had been circulating since a show in Alaska that there was gonna be an extended run at the Warfield, although it ended up being even more shows than were initially announced that would include acoustic sets. So it was not a complete shock. When we walked in and saw, you know, stools on the stage and a harpsichord. And not only were the acoustic sets amazing, they weren't just like revamped, you know, folk sets from Mother McCree's or whatever, you know. It sounded like they had had the experience of being that tight electric band all through the 70s the acoustic sets were not just like oh they're doing you know nostalgia for the old pokey days like it was actually really hot and really tight in a way that was not just you know looking back to the hootenanny days or something if you read the contemporaneous press accounts they say like tickets were very hard to get but if you were kind of a long time bay area deadhead which very much still felt like a a relatively small family at that point. You could not only get tickets, but you could get tickets pretty much on the day. So I do remember saying to my friends, like, Oh, you want to go down and see the dead tonight? <laughs> you know, it was, like, it was like going to Fisherman's Wharf. Like it was something that was always there, you know? And not only that, but because Bill Graham had put so much memorabilia uh, in the hallways and the auditorium, and there were even on the Inside of the marquee, as you left, I believe it said, one man gathers, while another man spills. So the whole thing was like a temple of deadhead dumb. And so you were rewarded by going to these shows with a feeling of continuity, that you were a part of this deep history that had been going at that point by, I guess, 15 years, that, you know, all this stuff had built up that you were a part of and you could see it on the walls. And, you know, I would say at that point, it's almost hard to remember, but almost everybody felt like they, they knew, you know, probably half the audience, like you would recognize your friends who were at all the Bay area shows like the Kaiser, you know, and kind of those smaller venues, you'd see the same people, you know, year after year. I mean, eventually we, Oh, saw each other grow up, get gray hair, have kids, you know, get married. So you felt like you were part of this story that the band was a part of because of this collection of memorabilia decorating the hallways. And you know, Market Street is not—it's <laughs> not lovely. Uh, you know, it's kind of a wind-blown wasteland of wastoids. So once you were
1: in. It felt very warm and cozy. Just like the Grateful Dead, promoter Bill Graham was celebrating 15 years in the business, and he was still going full steam ahead. Graham's attention to detail was legendary, and nowhere was that more obvious than at the 15th anniversary shows at the Warfield. Dead manager Richard Loren. He
8: took, you know, great pains to put together something really special. He installed things like speakers in the lobby so the bands could dance. You know something that's you know old hat now, but you know in those days he didn't have speakers in the lobby, you know, but he collected you know a lot of memorabilia and he filled the wall space and he he enlisted the services of the assistant manager kind of person peter Varsati and and his partner Dennis Larkin, and they designed this this uncle this uncle Sam skeleton with Uncle Sam hat's skeleton you know a poster. He had, you know, balloons everywhere. And there was the place smelled with marijuana. I mean, he was very, very
10: loose, you know, even back then. It's nice the way Bill Graham has it set up. Yeah, everyone appreciates it for sure.
2: The lobby's all decked out, and, and it's all uh, yeah, just beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. I want to walk down. Yep. Out- all the flowers and the films. <laughs>
1: Recently. Graham's production notes for several of the Warfield shows surfaced online. You can find the link at dead.net deadcast, and they're absolutely extraordinary. If you've never heard Bill Graham's speaking voice before, though, we need to rectify that before I read a few segments. This is from a 1977 interview.
4: I have the privilege of renting for a day this facility. I have decided to take these artists, put them on that stage, and through advertising and publicity or the desire on the parts of other humans, I will have these people come to the same meeting place, and at a given time, these people will affect these people, and these people will affect these people. Hopefully, they will have had a good time. They will have had a good time. I will have had a good time. They spent some money. They also made some money. I made some money. Nobody loses.
1: Every night, Graham filed a few pages of notes with the staff with a deeply incredible eye for detail. We need a mirror ball with a speed control device, he noted in one night. A few nights later, Graham had a revelation. He wrote to his staff, "'I'm finally beginning to realize that these shows, in actuality, comprise the most important piece of work this company has ever done. I can't speak for the rest of you, but I know that's what it is to me. After 15 years, we finally have some knowledge as to how best deal with our fellow man. These shows are giving us the opportunity to handle a situation and give us a second, third, and fifteenth chance to improve on the painting. Even though Dylan played 14 nights here,' Due to the fact that the only thing that was happening was happening on the stage, the rest of the building was unalive. The Grateful Dead and their audience allow us to be involved in this piece of theater, and we have the opportunity to play director of the non-musical choreography, with 15 shots to make it better and better. When you realize how much better the third evening was than the premiere night, you get the picture. We're used to trying to hit a home run on one swing, and that's it. This is not the case here. To me, this is a joyous piece of theater. The boundaries are much more far-reaching than I ever dreamed. And still a few nights after that, Bill Graham decided he wanted to document the occasion. We've all put too much love, labor, and creativity into this project, and I need to insist that we have it on record, he said. Graham's calls found their way to Video West, a pioneering music television outfit with shows on local Bay Area television. And at Video West, those calls found their way to a staff member who'd already been to multiple shows of the
10: Warfield Run, Eric Nelson. I was the in-house deadhead at Video West, and I jumped at the chance. And all the instruction I got was just cover what's interesting. Just go and, you know, we're proud of what we're doing, show it off to people. So I think for a, over a couple of nights, but it might only have been one night, we went and filmed everything and focused on the quotidian details, if you will, of what went into a concert at, at that time. It was just me, a cameraman, and a sound guy. Yeah, I won't say state-of-the-art equipment. If you look closely, the microphone is duct-taped, with foam insulation duct taped around it. Hardly a super pro outfit, but we all looked like deadheads. I was the only actual deadhead among the crew of three.
1: You can see the resulting half-hour documentary on the Creative Differences channel and Vimeo. Search for dead at Warfield.
10: The dead playing acoustic, first time in 10 years. I've been uh, 10 out of the 13 and I'm staying for the last two. I didn't get in one night and I had to go home for two. But if I'd be for everyone, I could. Okay, okay, Bill had decided to do something very special, not unlike what he did for the last waltz four years earlier. So he was very proud. He turned the Warfield into a Grateful Dead museum. There were photo, frame photographs everywhere, a lot of a memorabilia. It was very much the Bill Graham Shrine to the Grateful Dead. He loved, loved the Grateful Dead, and he felt that every venue. He presided over was his living room and it was his house, so he was very proud of what he was doing, and he was just as proud of his sister who was running the snack bar and making fresh bagels for everybody. Which you know, Bill Graham tested the bagels out; nothing was going to go out uh, over that counter without being checked. And there's a great scene where Bill was playing camera shy because Bill Graham, but his sister grabs him and drags him into the shot, and something you know, and and then he does that really sweet moment and it's time you remember you know this is the guy who walked out of as his family was being exterminated in the holocaust this is the guy who walks out of europe and obviously i didn't know that his sister walked out with him i can't say enough
1: nice things about eric's documentary After working with Bill Graham as an in-house videographer for several years, Eric would go on to a long and still continuing career as a documentarian, exploring a wide range of historical topics, and working with Werner Herzog, Gore Vidal, and many others. Along with his Warfield documentary, his hour-long production about the New Year's 1980-1981 shows is also on Vimeo. He also hosts an all-dead radio show every Monday from 1 to 3 p.m. on K-Squid 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz. One place that Eric and his crew went was the basement of the Warfield, where one could find the familiar faces of the Dead's engineering crew setting up their latest unfamiliar pieces of audio equipment, a new way to create live sonic imaging pioneered by Dan Healy and recorded by Betty Cantor-Jackson, Bob Matthews, and others. Here's the familiar voice of Bob Matthews, who spoke to us extensively about making Working Man's Dead during the first season of the Dead cast.
8: In the past, our live albums, we've always had to take tunes from different evenings, different
11: locations but the uh, desire of this, this project was to be able to work in one or two locations for a good period of time to be able to get settled into the groove and be able to
8: sit back and just play night after night after night and be able to come up with something really,
1: a good five-star performance evening and be able to put that out totally rather than picking. It would turn out to be the last project with the dead for both Bob Matthews and Betty Cantor Jackson, but it would be a fantastic one. With the expanded sound team led by Dan Healy, the tapes rolled away in the Warfield's basement.
7: One of the most striking things about those shows that was kind of surprising was that this it sounded much more intimate. Like, it sounded like they were using a sound system that was specifically intended for that room. And that had a couple of interesting effects. The acoustic sets sounded great. The electric sets, and I'm not dissing them because I, I love them and it was one of the high points of my life. But the electric set sounded a little bit miniaturized, you know, like it didn't have that huge, you know, kind of what would later become an arena filling sound. It sounded very kind of precise and crisp and jewel-like. And so, you know, things like acoustic guitar strings or particularly Brent's Fender Rhodes, I'm not sure if it's an actual Fender Rhodes or a synth emulation, but Oh, Dinah Rose. Oh, interesting. Yeah. but you know, that... I think it really... The sound of those shows really put that Brent sound in the foreground, and it it was just lovely, and what's interesting is that Phil's bass, which, you know, it sounds clear on the files on Archive, but what you don't get is that it was very punchy acoustically in the room, so you felt like... The dead had kind of, you know, put their ship in a bottle a a bit and and made it a kind of smaller sound for a smaller, more intimate setting. But that was kind of nice, you know, but then you didn't get like the big, you know, playing jams like at Winterland, you know, in 74 or whatever. It sounded smaller, but in a kind of a nice way, if that makes any sense. One of the tracks from 101480, which was, I believe, the, the climactic Night of the War film run, ended up on the box set So Many Roads, which I co produced with uh, Blair Jackson and David Gans. And there's a very specific reason why that track ended up on the box set, besides the fact that it's one of the two best versions of the songs that I can remember. It's just so tight it's like whipping when they when they transition into the into the kind of waltz time section like it just does not get tighter than that and the reason why that's on the box set is that we knew everybody in the hall knew that they were recording an album we didn't know it was going to be two different vinyl sets dead set and reckoning separating the electric and acoustic music i think we thought it was going to be just a you know maybe a four cd you know set or something but when they played the Let It Grow, Wheel, Music Never Stopped, to, I believe, close the first electric set, maybe, on 10-14-80, I was absolutely certain that that jamming sequence was going to be on the album. There was no question. In part because it was a fantastic live version of The Wheel, Let It Grow was sublime, and then Music Never Stopped was, as I say, one of the two best ones I ever heard. And so when that jam was over, I said to myself, well, okay, at least we know what one side of the record is going to be, you know, and then, and then it wasn't, and it was massively frustrating. I mean, I listened to those records. They're good. Their performances were well chosen, but it feels chopped up. You know, it doesn't have the flow of uh, actual sets. So I put that music never stopped because I thought it was sort of a, a karmic error that Kevin made, that I wanted to try to fix. Uh, And I still love it. I I just listened to it 10 minutes ago, and it sounds as good as it ever did. (laughs)
1: Bill Graham made it special, right up to the point when it was time for the music to finally stop after 15 shows. Richard Loren.
8: When the band finally returned to the stage for the final encore, he did his big thing. He, took, you know, he put a champagne bottle on the table and glasses, and turned the lights up on the spotlight on the audience, and everybody was drinking champagne.
7: That last night, ten fourteen eighty, uh, Bill Graham had you know champagne distributed to the audience. I forget if it was for the 15th anniversary or somebody's birthday or something, but, you know, so we all, like, gave, them, gave the band a toast with champagne. It was an incredibly
1: bonding and community-building experience for Bay Area deadheads. At the same New York press conference where Garcia and Weir denied their 15th anniversary shows were 15th anniversary shows, they also announced something else new. The final night at Radio City, Halloween, would be simulcast to 20 movie theaters east of the Mississippi.
3: We've been, actually been toying with the idea for a while. Somebody's actually done it before. The Who have done it, b- it before? Yeah. We've done it before with regular TV. At home, we've done it with the local uh, educational, ha ha, educational
1: channel. <laughs> <laughs> the dead had begun looking for ways to stream their live shows before there was even a ground floor to get on at. They virtually built the foundation, beginning with a KMPX-FM broadcast from the Carousel Ballroom in 1968. In 1970s, they were making American Beauty. The Dead participated in a quadraphonic KQED live television and radio simulcast from Winterland. Soon after, their managers began seriously pitching commercial and public television stations alike on doing Dead events, to little avail, at least until the later 70s. On New Year's 1978 into 79, an all night show from Winterland's closing went out on local television. But they never beamed themselves into movie theaters. Manager Richard Loren. We knew it was going to sell
8: out for sure, and it did. You know, six thousand people a night for eight nights—it was a complete sellout. So, again, first time in the history that a rock band simulcast their shows. So we simulcast the performance to twenty theaters with full concert sound, from Chicago to far south as Florida. Uh, You know, this way, you know, Deadheads throughout the United States—at least on the eastern part. Eastern Coast were able to, to enjoy, a ho- had a little Halloween treat.
1: East Coast promoter John Scher came up with a plan.
8: John thought he could get the people that, you know, that did the fights, the heavyweight championship fights, Muhammad Ali and them, you know, it would be filmed or, or shot at the site, and then it would be shown all over the United States and the world on screen. Don't dare
5: show up at any of the theaters <laughs> where the video simulcast is going to be uh happening unless you really expect to be scared to death because it's going to be very scary
3: <laughs> right on yeah.
5: so i mean i mean, I mean holiday, if you have the man. guts to come to the video simulcast come on to the simulcast but i really don't think you can do it yeah
1: here's how jerry described it to an interviewer the next year in saint paul it was really a, an
3: experimental idea top to bottom we did it uh you know, mostly as a gesture to our audience to see if it wasn't some something we could do apart from living on the road. You know yeah. what I mean? Something that would maybe allow us to be a little bit more selective, and also to see whether there was something, whether the experiment experience would be would have any value to uh, you know the concert goer.
1: To direct, John Cher suggested Len Delamico the 29-year-old videographer who had led the closed-circuit cruise at Cher's shows on the East Coast for the past few years. It would begin a decade-and-a-half partnership between Delamico and the Dead, becoming their in-house video director. He was dispatched to San Francisco and made his way to the backstage door at the Warfield.
5: The word went out, when this guy shows up, you take take charge of him and take care of him. So I was, some boom, 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 and there was some weird guy in shades. It was backstage. Who are you? What do you want? I think of the Wizard of Oz when they knock on the door and it opens. You know, Wait here. Boom. Oh, God. Parrish appears, uh, who I didn't know, and I didn't know what that meant, but means quite a lot. But he's a little forbidding. And, you know, when I became his friend, and now I, that I can look back, I mean, he's a great actor. The crew was projecting a certain thing, which is, you can't get by us. You have to kill us to get by us. And they protected the band. You know, Parrish is this wonderful, lovable guy, but he had this image of being fearsome. Follow me. So I follow him through this labyrinth. The stuff that's going by me is like, is that, what did I just see? Was it a two-foot bong? What was that? Little kids and stuff. Boom, 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 A door. And the door opens and the smoke comes out. And Steve steps in. It's a tiny little room. And I look and there's Garcia sitting right there, smiling with a big... Fat doobie. The first thing that happens is, hey, I'm Jerry and I, I'm Len and he's hands hand me this doobie. I've never seen anything that big. And I'm like, okay, if I don't suck on this, I, I'm probably out. <laughs> so, I take this huge hit and 20, 30 seconds later, I'm just completely fucked up. I look around. There's nobody I recognize. All the seats are taken and on a, a road case. Sits this giant hulking Hell's Angel looking mean, you know. I'm like, oh, okay. But they're all smoking and stuff. Jerry's working the room. He's like, come on and sit down. And Parrish says to the biker, Joe, get up, give this guy your seat. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> no, no, don't do that. It's okay. <laughs> but the guy got up and decided to sit down. But before they left, the HA was encouraged to give his message to Jerry. And so he got very serious and he said, I bring a message from Sonny Berger, who I guess was imprisoned in Oakland. And Jerry's like, oh, it's like that scene in The Godfather where the guy is rehearsing what he's going to say to the Godfather. Uh, Sonny wishes you very well on, in this new run. This was the first day of the first show of that run. They had never done this before. And all this other stuff. And Jerry's like, oh, that, that's very sweet. Tell Sonny, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what the fuck am I in the middle of? But eventually, Steve clears the room, because we're getting to showtime. Parrish clears the room, and I get up, and Jerry says, you stay. I'm like, okay, what's up with that? I don't know. We're not talking. He's got the Big Martin, and he's going through his warm-up for an acoustic set, as any musician would do. Runs beautiful, with beautiful sound of this beautiful instrument. And I'm like, well, you know, shouldn't don't you want to be alone? And I and he said, no, this is fine. And so I just I started to relax. And then he played, I guess he was improvising. Beautiful lyrical music. I was smitten. Many years later, I realized that I was being methodically seduced. There was another director hovering around, but he he didn't last the day. He probably turned down the joint. (laughs) But you know, and this went on for many minutes. 10 minutes or something. And I'm just sitting there by myself. I'm the only person hearing this. And I'm an archivist. I'm like, I don't have a recorder. I I won't even remember this, you know. And then uh, the door bursts open and Steve's like, we're on, we're on, we're on. And he jumps up with the guitar and leaves and the door shuts. And I'm sitting there by myself. (laughs) Eventually somebody saved me and brought me to the front row of the Warfield balcony right next to Healy and Brightman best seat in the house to watch the first show. And it was mayhem and it was fantastic. I mean, these guys are great musicians, you know, they're just the harmony, you know, Brent had been with them now for a year or more and they had the sound and it was just fantastic. Then there were two more sets, you know, in the coming days I was put up very nicely, you know, limos and everything and, you know, meeting with the, Garcia was, was put in charge of this project by the band. So he was in charge of me. And so we would meet, well, what are we going to do, you know? And uh, we need hosts. We need help. We're not TV people. We need somebody to do, okay, Franklin and Davis, Saturday Night Live stars, really? Okay. What kind of budget do we have for this, you know? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. (laughs) That was
1: another phrase you don't often hear. Don't worry about the budget. At their press conference in New York, they also announced their co-hosts,
3: uh, Franken and Davis. Franken and Davis, our old pals. Franken and Davis, uh, de- former Deadheads, former Saturday Night uh, Live uh, fugitives. Now hopeless. Uh, now bums out, out on the
1: street, just like the rest of us. Are going to be involved in the simulcast, where this, they'll be doing the blow by blow, as it were, through the magic of archival audio. But really, thanks to the incredible work and generosity of our friend David Gans. Here's the late Tom Davis. I very aggressively recommend Tom's incredible memoir, 39 Years of Short-Term Memory Loss. And if you'd like to hear David's entire conversation with Tom Davis, we've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast.
9: Long before I met the Grateful Dead, I was a deadhead, and I do remember being very high at Winterland once, and uh, talking, I I thought it was to God, I'm not sure, but I said, if there's any way I can work with these guys, I want to do it, and it's the most important thing to me. Uh, one or two other things, but uh, that came true in 1980 because it started with a phone call from Jerry, which Jerry didn't call very often. <laughs> Would you guys like to host us on a closed-circuit broadcast on Halloween from Radio City? Um, let me think about that, Jerry. I'll get back to you. No, I was, uh, yes, yeah, we'll do it.
4: And please
1: welcome to the Deadcast, Al Franken.
4: My partner, Tom Davis, we were a comedy team, Franken and Davis. And and he was a deadhead before me. I graduated college and we went out to L.A. together. And it was 1973. And he started playing the Dead for me. We drove out and I went, wow. And then we went to a concert in Santa Barbara. And then we just kept going to concerts. We would go up and do, you know, in the 70s, 74, 75, go up to Winterland and go up to San Francisco and do all four nights, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's transcendent, the the connection you feel with the people that are there. You feel connected to to these people, certainly, but also kind of you just go, oh, I wish humanity could be like this. And then I would do a lot of thinking during it, A lot of dancing, did a lot of thinking at these things. I used to do a lot of writing, actually, for SNL when I was at the concert. I was very free associative. They were actually productive for me. (laughs) The music just made me... Sometimes there was a drug involved, too.
1: At Saturday Night Live, starting with its 1975 debut, Franken and Davis were paid one combined salary and became the show's in-house deadheads. That didn't mean they just took acid and cranked out comedy. But that did happen once.
9: There was only one time when we took acid on Tuesday to write a sketch. Only one time. On, on, during a show week, Tuesday was the big night, and we couldn't think of anything. And at midnight, I said, Al, we've got to do something. I took the big half. Uh, five hours later, we had written the final days sketch, the Nixon wow. final days. That was the LSD sketch.
1: How about that? The final days would be one of Saturday Night Live's most legendary sketches, capturing the surreal end of a doomed presidency, with Dan Aykroyd's Richard Nixon going full paranoid, conversing with the paintings on the Oval Office walls. Naturally, Frank and Davis pressured their boss to get their favorite band to play on Saturday Night Live.
9: Lauren was standing next to G.E. Smith, and they're both my, my good friends. This is 1978 in the spring, and I'm uh, 1978 was a great year for me probably the peak of my career, really, or certainly my influence at Saturday Night Live. I just thought it was the right time to pop the question. Hey, Lauren, can we book the Grateful Dead? I think they should be on the show. Lauren goes, hmm, weren't they big in the 60s? And then he turns to GE. GE, do you think we should book the Grateful Dead? And GE goes, they're not happening. I said, Lauren, they sell more tickets than anyone else. And Tom, this is television. No one knows who they are. So that week, I wrote a sketch with uh Gilda and Lorraine giving testimonials in some uh commercial parody that we were doing live. Gilda was Candace Brightman and and Lorraine was Donna Gacho because I always use real names. So, uh the following it got on the air and the following Monday I, uh, I get summoned to the boss's office. And says, "Davis, did you use real grateful dead names in that thing you wrote?" I went, yeah, I always use real names. Well, don't do that again, because I got all these phone calls. I said, Lauren, you told me nobody knows who they are. This is television. He goes, all right, I'll book them, but I'll book them in the fall. And true to his word, he booked them in the fall. That's how they got on, thanks to me.
1: The episode in question was probably May 11, 1978, with host Richard Dreyfus. Lorraine Newman appears as UCLA doctor Candace Brightman the name of the Dead's longtime lighting designer, in a sketch called Sex Test. It's, uh, edgy. Thanks a bunch to my friend Tom for helping to figure it out. Gilda Radner doesn't actually appear as Donna Godshow, but earlier that spring, on March 11th, opposite host Art Garfunkel, John Belushi played a kiss roadie named Steve Parrish. The Dead appeared in the fall.
9: The music is blocked at like 11 in the morning, and our director, Davy Wilson, was an old-school director and he likes to know where you're going to be at what part of the song and stuff so he was in the control room and they were doing the rehearsing and of course jerry was doing it differently every time and sometimes his back was to the camera I was like J- uh, jerry uh wouldn't you uh, where are you going to be when you do your solo and jerry goes i don't know uh click uh jerry uh, don't you uh w- w- want to be on camera Uh, Not particularly. No, I don't give a shit. (laughs) Click, you know, and that was. And then when they when they got on the air, Jerry was shot out of a cannon, and he played every camera. He knew what every camera was going on. He looked right into the lens, and he articulated every word perfectly, like he was like, "I'll show you how to do it." And and you could see him having fun. He loved it. After all that. And giving everybody trouble who enjoyed it the most. You look at the tape and tell me.
5: Almost before I knew it, it was like, well, we'll have him out here tomorrow. Well, Frank Nives will be here tomorrow. And I'm like, all right. (laughs) It
9: started by, they flew us out. They did a week at the Warfield, which is a very nice venue to see the Grateful Dead. And got got us a room at the, everybody had rooms at the Holiday Inn, because it was right nearby. The first couple of days, we just enjoyed the show. We were walking around the venue and we knew we were going to pre-tape some stuff for the broadcast. And so we had a crew, we had to write something and, and uh, pre-record it there. But the first couple of days we were just wandering around the venue going, "Ooh, uh, oh boy, they sound good. Isn't this great? But we kept gravitating toward this place under the stage where there was one young biker whose sole job it was, was to keep people who couldn't stop talking away from the Leslie speakers that Brent had hooked up down below the stage with a microphone, hooked up to the Leslie speakers. And so this guy was supposed to keep people from talking nearby because it was for mixing the album. And we just kept going down there, and he finally... Broke a chair leg off and chased us away because <laughs> we just kept forgetting because we were having so much fun. Uh, and, oh, i got a great idea. Let's do this. Let's do that.
5: Everything just happened very fast. The writing, the, the writing was just me and them, but, most, you know, I was just there to be a director to say, how are you going to do this? Or, you know, but I wasn't going to tell them what to write. I, I had an opinion and so did Jerry, a very important one. Frank and Davis were
1: obviously devoted to each other. They they were friends from childhood, and and they were like one person, kind of. In its original and widespread usage, Jerry's kids were the young beneficiaries of comedian Jerry Lewis's annual Labor Day telethons in support of the Muscular Dystrophy Association.
8: We have some beautiful kids of mine who would love to march in front of these cameras and say thank you personally. I have for the last almost 25 years been their spokesman. So I have to say thank you for them. We will not march them in front of the cameras. We maintain that they have a tremendous integrity and a dignity which we feel we must uphold. And we will march in front of the cameras. We will sweat in front of the cameras. And we will work our hearts out in
1: front of the cameras so that they can sit with complete integrity and dignity. That bit was from 1974. In the capable hands of Frank and Davis, the concept evolved where you might think it would and a few places you might not.
4: Tom and I filled in during the breaks. It was a fundraiser for Jerry's Kids. And Jerry's Kids were deadheads that we had a poster, you know, like the representative deadhead, this guy who fell out of the second deck of the, at the Spectrum. You know, he went to Egypt and didn't get into the show. <laughs> that kind of thing. And so the the conceit was we were doing this telethon At these 15 venues.
9: We did a Jerry's Kids thing, you know, with some pathetic, please send money for these people. They want to go see the show and they need some help. And, And Jerry's Kids, and we're testing my memory now, but then we had a thing, a special gift for someone who donated the most or something would get Jerry's finger. And so we had Jerry putting his other hand, using his other hand, putting his finger through the hole in the bottom of the little jewel box you know with the cotton and jerry would hold yes here's my finger and <laughs> and uh <laughs> and uh, it'll go to whoever you know does something or wins the lottery or whatever we're going to do and of course during the course of the evening the finger disappears and you see it wiggling around in the background while we're doing other interviews and stuff the finger kept crawling around so it was a running joke through the show that uh, where's jerry's finger you know it was crawling around
5: That was a bit where when I heard, I'm like, I don't know, really? You're going to ask Jerry if we can make comedy out of his fucking missing finger? (laughs) Yeah, we're going to do it. He'll love it. (laughs) And when he did it, it wiggles and I'm like, cut, Jerry. The idea is that it's not. And Tom's like, no, 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 no. That was that was better.
1: (laughs) And then it comes across and we use the music from Jaws. In the course of putting together the Jerry's kids sketch, the Grateful Dead found another piece of their particular puzzle. Dennis McNally. The year before, he'd published his first book, Desolate Angel, the first serious biography of Jack
2: Kerouac. And they eventually picked a guy named Tumbleweed who looked like a Jerry's kid, right? You know, he was long-haired, and, and eventually that was cut out as being too, much, too complicated or something. But in the process of doing that, they auditioned 10 or 12 people that Eileen Law sort of gathered up from the office who so were deadheads who had good stories to gather material, and I was one of those people. And in the middle of it, I mentioned to Jerry that, not in the middle of it, about one minute in Mm -hmm. and fairly elegantly, I thought, um, I mentioned that, oh, by the way, I wrote this book about Jack Kerouac and sent it to you. Did you ever get it? And he got all excited and we bonded. And, uh, after a while, Davis got tired of listening to Kerouac stories because that's not what the business at hand was about. Jerry was, would have been glad to spend the rest of the day, you know, raving about Kerouac. And, um... Two months later, long story short, he he sent Rock and Alan Trist to meet with me, and they said, Jerry says, why don't you do us? Why don't you write a book about the Grateful Dead? Dennis McNally
1: began work a few months later. Before being sidetracked for a decade, Shanghaied into a parallel career as the Grateful Dead's publicist. In New York, the Dead took over Midtown and moved into Radio City Music Hall. They brought their mixing board from their own studio,
5: because it had to be that good, and took a room up in the loft in Radio City. They had to knock out pieces of wall to get that mixing board up. This is the most valuable theater in the world. They have, they have memorial nicks that the dead made this. You know. Richard Loren.
8: We also ran into you know, some problems with the management at Radio City Matter. Once we went there, the crew came up to us and said, hey, management's crazy. They, they need to talk to you. There. They're all freaked out. I so, said, what's going on? So we better go up to the office. So John and I went up to the office in their suits, their lawyers. <laughs> management people were there. They were all grim-faced and we got to cancel the show. I said, what are you talking about? We have a contract. Cancel the show. What? Cancel the show. He said, well, he says, you've desecrated this historic site. I said, what do you mean? So he's talking about the skeleton posters that were designed for the Warfield. Peter and, and, and Dennis designed one for the Radio City Music Hall, which was, of course, the cover of the video and uh, I'm sure it was on also the, yeah, it was the cover also of the double album. So they were, Freaked, because here was Radio City Music Hall with two skeletons.
5: They said, we think it implies the death of Radio City, which no one had ever thought that it meant that. I mean, why would it mean? I don't know. I heard this from Jerry's personal manager, Sue Stevens, and she kept laughing throughout the story. So the comeback to them was, when you allowed the Grateful Dead to hire the room, did you notice that in the name of the band was the word dead? (laughs) Are you unfamiliar with their iconography? They're one of the biggest bands in America. We sent you some iconography. It's on the letterhead, actually.
8: Finally, we settled. We agreed to uh, to not sell the posters and uh, that was it. We may have not sold the posters there, but we continued to sell them because there was nothing wrong with them and they you know they never sued
1: sued us. I think it was just yeah, you know, I think it was just a legal grant stand, quite frankly. The lawyers patrolled the venue and found their way into the taping of one of the show's centerpiece sketches, in which Al Franken portrays Henry Kissinger as a concert taper.
5: There's Henry there and uh, with Tom on the stage, empty, empty radio city, middle of the day, rehearsing and then shooting. And then uh, my production manager comes over and he says, Len, we have to stop shooting this. And I just said, what, what are you talking about? And he says, see those four guys over there? And I looked over and I swear to God, it was like in... A Cohen Brothers film. There were four guys in black suits and ties. They had attache cases. It's like central casting send up four lawyers. Yeah, briefcases. Yeah, ties. Good. And there they were. And I'm like, is this something? You get? It's not a gag. Okay. Go over there and ask them what they're doing. Oh, they, I did. And they said, you, you can't shoot. You can't do that with Dr. Kissinger. And I said, well, why not? And they he said, well, they, they said that's, uh, you know, it's not allowed background is that Kissinger was a a product of the Rockefeller dynasty that created him. I just looked at those guys. I said, Shelby,
1: go over there and tell them to fuck off. And he went over and polite, and they just left. In the midst of this, Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir turned up on Good Morning America to promote the simulcast. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. It's pretty amazing. Imagine the brightest, cheeriest set for a television morning show you can imagine— and then drop Garcia and Weir into the middle of it. It looks like CGI. Here are these
10: young people that I mean. He says I spend all my money on going yeah. to uh, these concerts. So do
1: we.
3: <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it costs us as much to work almost as we make there. working, and it's the same. You know, I mean, our our commitment is like theirs. It's the same. Same. We're the same. We're the same sort of people as them, really. It keeps us going. It keeps us off the streets.
1: On Halloween night at Radio City and movie theaters east of the Mississippi. The dead kept themselves and plenty of deadheads off the streets. The evening began with a piece de resistance, recorded in the more spacious backstage at the Warfield. An extended and totally blocked out comedy routine with The Grateful Dead, made with a single extended eight-minute tracking shot. Eat your heart out, good fellas.
9: And what we did pre-record there was, uh, hey, it's Franken and Davis, we've got our laminated... Access anywhere passes. Come on along with us. Let's go hang out with the Grateful Dead backstage, which, of course, is the dumbest thing you could say. That was always our formula. It's like, what's the stupidest thing we could do? Come on back with us. And the camera starts following us, and we go right to the buffet table, which was a mock buffet table was supposed to look elaborate and al picks up some ribs with his bare hand you know barbecued ribs and i'm pouring myself a beer and ramrod comes up and goes hey you guys that's for the band and it's like hey pointing to our laminated passes we're with the band come on along come on everybody so the camera follows us
4: i would encourage everyone if they could to go to the youtube of me and tom uh going to each dressing room and asking jerry and phil and bobby and billy and mickey each to introduce us and we offend them all
5: here's me the 29 year old okay 30 year old nerd in the middle of this pirate coven you know with unlimited budget to do something that's really fairly limited and then snl star next to me going okay and this is the way you know because frank is incredibly intelligent you know, he went to Harvard and you know, he should have been president. Okay, so they can we're gonna take the camera and we're gonna we're gonna take it like this down this hall, and we're gonna go in each of these dressing rooms and we have a script for each of the guys, and I've rehearsed with all of them, and I'm like, what? Can't we just break this up? No, 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 it has to be continuous to be he was totally right. But we had to do it about ten times before we got a continuous take. And we went and
9: visited uh, you know, Bob Weir was was
5: using a hair blower
9: you know, to make his hair pretty. And uh, and uh, we had an actress playing uh, Kreutzmann's wife, and I hit on her. And Brent comes up, and I don't recognize him, and I ask him if he could go out and score some beer for me. Uh, just all the worst things that you could say to the Grateful Dead. And we get in with Phil and Jerry. It's like, hey, Phil, Jerry, do you mind if we come in? Well, actually, we're trying to figure out what the set's going to be, if you don't mind. Oh, no, we'll just be a minute. We want to come in. Oh, and Al goes, oh, This is a beautiful guitar. It wasn't really Jerry's guitar, but it was a Stratocaster, a Sunburst, really nice one. And Al has got the ribs in his hand. He sets the ribs down and picks up by the (laughs) neck, picks up the guitar. Oh, this is a beautiful guitar. And then he drops it, Right. right? So that worked out really well. And it fit in at Radio City. It really did look like we were backstage at Radio City. It just fit in really nicely.
1: Len Delamico lined up the video so that Al Franken, Tom Davis, and Brent Midland stepped from the taped segment at the Warfield, shown on screens at Radio City, directly onto the stage.
5: The conceit was that this was live backstage, and it worked perfectly. So we swapped out, we did the edit from tape to live, just as they came through the door from, you know, and they were in the same clothes. We needed that to be
1: indisputably so for it to work. Here's Dan Lynch, known to some of us as NYC Taper, who attended the Halloween show as a teenager? It's
12: Halloween of my senior year of high school, so it was a it was a big day for me from beginning to end. I remember that day, not just that night, but I remember that day. Like ever, everyone was wearing costumes, a lot of people were in costumes. Maybe not everybody, but a lot of people were in costumes. Not only in high school that day, but also at the show, and so that created kind of a, like a special, sort of like otherworldly kind of atmosphere to it. I was wearing a white spacesuit with a propeller beanie hat. That was what i had worn to high school that day and that I also wore to the Grateful Dead show because I thought the whole space thing was was a good theme. Other friends of mine from high school who couldn't get into that particular show were doing the, the simulcast thing, which I think was at the Calderon in Epstein, if I'm not mistaken. When we got into the room, the show I think had sort of started and I remember getting in to the main room and not going upstairs, just going onto the floor. And walking down the aisle as far as I could get, and the aisles were stuffed. No one was moving, and no ushers were clearing the aisles or anything. So I was literally on the floor in the center aisle, probably about halfway back for the whole show. I have no idea where my ticket was, honestly. No idea. The lights had gone down, which made it a lot easier to get into, you know, the floor. And I remember this very specifically, getting in and getting as far down as I could, and I was alone. Like, my sister and her boyfriend and whoever else we came with, you know, went their own separate ways. If there were ushers there, they, they weren't doing much because the Dead Shows in that era, the whole room was filled with a fog of pot smoke. So even if you weren't actually smoking, you got a contact high.
1: At movie theaters around the East Coast, there were raging smoke-filled Halloween parties. There was a costume contest that involved remote cameras.
5: 15 or 20 years later, um, I'm married and I'm meeting my wife's friend. And she says, oh, I'm so-and-so. I won the costume contest. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, Halloween, 1980, Boston. I was the one who won the costume contest. She was a a mushroom. Her cactus or something. She was completely covered up. I, I wouldn't have known. But yeah, costume contest.
12: This was, I believe, my sixth Grateful Dead show. My first one was in 1978 at Giant Stadium. So that's the only stadium show I saw in that era. And then all of the other ones were in either Nassau Coliseum or Madison Square Garden. So, you know, those are obviously much bigger rooms. So the whole Radio City thing, it was kind of a culture shock. And, you know, coming into this beautiful, you know, ballroom-ish old theater and you know, getting in, getting down into these, you know, plush seats. It was a very different experience than all of my other prior Grateful Dead experiences. When the lights came up, which was twice, because as you know, there were three sets, it was like musical chairs to get into <laughs> to get into a seat, because otherwise the, the ushers would kick you out. So I remember actually getting into a seat, not my seat, certainly, and sitting down in between sets and, you know, watching... The, the entertainment that followed. The Al Franken and Tom Davis stuff and you know some of the things that they did in between sets, which was highly entertaining.
1: Though they taped much of the comedy of the Warfield, there were some live bits to execute, too. Tom Davis waded into the audience for trivia contests.
4: Hey, your question is, who dosed Jack Kennedy? Lee Harvey Osley. That's right. That's I absolutely right. Done, uh, what
1: do yeah. we ha- what do we have for our yeah, winner over here? Boy, Ryan, you get a Marvel frozen, prime young turkey, and uh, enjoy that
9: turkey, but please don't take it into the balcony. The fire marshal won't permit us to bring frozen turkeys into the balcony.
0: Thanks a lot,
7: Ryan.
1: During the Jerry Kids segment, Tom Davis allegedly gets dosed with LSD, wanders onto the stage, and begins to climb onto the scaffolding and take off his clothes, a hallowed Grateful Dead concert movie tradition.
4: The stage. He, he could hurt himself. Tom, Tom, oh, come up, come back to me, Tom. Tom. Oh, no, he's going to hurt himself. Tom. Tom, don't. Come on, get him.
1: Len Amico has something to reveal about Tom Davis's performance on Halloween 1980. He's hot. He's on acid. He's acting, but he's also really out of it. What
5: you're seeing is, is a, I don't know, a nine inch ledge that's used by uh, bonded and insured union members to change light bulbs or something. And they probably have a, uh, a scaffold that moves. It's not meant to be walked upon. Okay. And this takes me to my point about Tom. He was completely fearless. You know, he, he was brash, sharp as hell. But his fearlessness was just remarkable. He would do anything for comedy. I should not have allowed that to happen. And he was high on acid. And if he had told me that, I would definitely, I I would have just said, come on. But I didn't know until it was over.
1: But the audience lost their mind. If it was the first live concert simulcast to movie theaters, then it was almost certainly the first simulcast acid trip too. And the first kept on coming, even after the shows themselves were over. Another person who came into the Grateful Dead's world with the 15th anniversary shows was engineer Jeffrey Norman, who served as an editor on Dead Set, the electric double LP, and would become an in-house studio engineer in the decades to follow.
11: It was 1980, 81. It was with Radio City Music Hall, that, you know, the, the, the electric version of Reckoning, Dead Set. And that was mixed by Bob and Betty and... I think that and The Reckoning is one of the best-sounding albums ever. They had this great technique that had to do with putting the audience on a separate machine. The multitrack was, was the recording, and then the audience pair of mics was on a four-track machine without getting too technical. And they locked together by time code. Okay, they both had time code that told the machines to go together. But by adjusting the offset of the time code, you could move the audience close to the stage. And so the audience made it, I mean, take a listen to those. There's just, it's very nicely ambient, but you still have the close mic sound of the instruments. And it was a great technique. Now you could do it, easily in the digital world, but back then in the analog world, to move tracks in time separate from other tracks is, well, very difficult to do. Um, that's when I started. I was an assistant engineer for the—oh, do the editing. I did the editing for that album.
1: Though they may have originally planned to try to catch a single perfect show for the album, the tapes made by Dan Healy, Bob and Betty in the Warfield and at Radio City were combed through for their best takes. And as the dead well knew from Skull and Roses in Europe 72— even the best live albums sometimes require some studio magic, or at least massaging. It was Jeffrey Norman's job to make sure everything fit.
11: That was all because it was vinyl. There was only 22 minutes on the side of a record, and usually you, know, you go longer, but you, you lose by doing that. But yeah, the idea was we had to fit, it was four record, or two, two record set, four sides, and a fit you know, a performance on there. And so a lot of things had to be cut. And then in hindsight, as I got to be more really familiar with what I was doing as far as the essence of Grateful Dead, it's a <laughs> shame, Fire on the Mountain. I remember cutting uh, cutting it in half or solos that I would cut, have to cut for because of time. And the only way musically it would work would be, well, cut out the good part. <laughs> Go for, you know, leave the, leave, you know, cut out near the beginning and come back at the end just so that it all made sense. Uh, well, it was, it was sort of like they left it to me, you know, And but the idea was you got to get this down. This has got to fit in this amount of time. So I would just look at it musically and didn't cut out vocals and try to make it so that it would at least flow. But it, again, I had to cut out a lot of, you know, good playing to do that.
1: Even if Reckoning and Dead Set are from different nights of the shows, Dead Ahead isn't. In fact, by itself, Dead Ahead represented something quietly new for The Grateful Dead, now taken for granted. The first commercial release of a nearly complete live show. Phil Lesh was experiencing some technical problems on the 31st, so with the exception of two acoustic songs flown in from October 30th, everything else came from Halloween. Within that, another quiet first on a Dead release was the inclusion of the sections labeled Rhythm Devils and Space. Beginning with Europe 72, the Dead had sometimes named their jams for live releases, probably in part to share songwriting royalties. In the spring of 1980, Mickey Hart and Billy Kreutzmann had released an album titled The Rhythm Devils Play River Music, a document of their soundtrack work for Apocalypse Now. And it was the first time the most formless part of the second set had a name too, Space When Len Amico and Jerry Garcia edited the video into what became Dead Ahead, that portion of the show became a platform for experimentation, too. As the Grateful Dead's 15th anniversary began to turn into their 16th, they continued to stay weird.
5: We decided to put some little effects into Dead Ahead to get our feet wet. There was no digital anything in 1980. Imagine that. So these were analog effects machines that we were using. And uh, analog effects... Are fundamentally different. They don't look like digital effects. They're they're different. And I, I I think they may someday come back like like the use of a theremin. I know the drum solo was shortened because Billy Cobham isn't in it and he was there. We shot that. When we post-produced this show and 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 so far which was much more complex technically the people the post production houses were like, "Well, wait a minute. This is $1,000 an hour, you know that, right?" Garcia is there like <laughs> You think we care? <laughs> because I'd be like, "So show me what, what's this machine." And they'd go, well, oh, It's an image strobe modulator. It's an interocitor. Movie fans will get that reference. And and we'd be like, "What does it do?" And like, really, you want to stop and get a yeah? Show us what it does. And you would. And and we're like, "I think we can use that." And they'd be like, "Well, you have to have storyboards, and you have to figure that out. You can't just come in here." And we're like, "Yes, we can. Sit down, relax." <laughs> and the results were just—I I don't know—it's—it's so, it's hard to describe because it was so exciting. And the next day, those same—they were always guys. We'd come in, and they were different. They were like changed people. It's like they've been freed.
0: Every time I listen to these two albums, I'm taken back to when I first heard them. I especially love Dark Hollow and Monkey and the Engineer on Reckoning, and I'm always amazed how the transition from Feel Like a Stranger into Franklin's Tower on Dead Set rivals the transition in the epic Help on the Way Slipknot Franklin's Tower on One from the Vault from 81375. Both Reckoning and Dead Set are winners from start to finish. Thanks very much for tuning in. Visit us over at dead.net slash deadcast. You'll never know what you find. Be well. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Deadcast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.